0: This is the Country Hour on ABC Radio.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Queensland Country Hour. I'm Madeline McCosker and I'll be joining you for the next hour. Coming up before one o'clock with a lot of fire activity over the weekend, you'll hear from the Queensland Fire and Emergency Services about the week ahead. Also, find out what's behind the multi-million dollar upgrade to the 23-year-old National Livestock Identification System. And before one o'clock, John Williamson sang about wanting a home with lots of these trees. But could gum trees be used to treat patients with diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's?
2: We're looking at having a functional food with this compound within the next um, 18 months. You'll
1: hear more on that one shortly. First today though, fire crews and emergency services were kept busy over the weekend with a number of bushfires burning out of control over the state. They've been brought under control now, but with an extreme fire danger risk in the southwest later in the week, Queensland Fire and Emergency Services are preparing for a busy week ahead. State Coordinator Steve De Pinto joins me now. Steve, there were a number of fires burning over the weekend right across the state. So can you update us on what the situation is today?
3: Yeah, look, uh, luckily uh, all those uh, fires are in a, in a controllable uh, situation uh, and there's no current threat to prop- properties and all the warnings we had out are now down at the uh, stay informed level. The two particular fires of concern yesterday were at Emerald and Biawar. However, those fires are, have been contained overnight and are burning within containment lines.
1: Obviously, a massive effort over the weekend from the emergency crews at those fires to get them under control. Um, you know, as you said, the, the fire at Emeralds. You know, there was an evacuation warning put in there at one stage. So, it, it's been a, a pretty big weekend. How are you feeling with the week that's coming?
3: Yeah, it certainly has been a a big weekend. The week that's coming uh, coming will be interesting. Starting Thursday, uh, Friday, and again on Sunday, in the Channel Country, there is an extreme uh, fire danger warning there. And particularly on Thursday, there's about uh, eight or nine areas where the fire danger rating is high. Um, It does decrease slightly on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday but it is still of concern for us.
1: And, you know, conditions have been just right for these sort of bushfires and grass fires popping up across the state. And there's a lot of concern from graziers and farmers and landholders and, and people right across Queensland about what is to come as the season progresses. You know, people are kind of just on their toes waiting for something to happen.
3: Yes, it, it's it's true. It's... Um... It is going to be an interesting year and a lot of work has been done prior to this when the weather was suitable to do hazard reduction burns and we do rely on people um, being proactive, going onto our website, doing some planning for themselves around their own property and understanding what the warnings mean for them and they can take action in a a calm and controlled way uh, and earlier the better.
1: And if there are people that haven't done those uh, hazard reduction burns or or backburnings yet, I guess what's your advice to them now at this stage?
3: Look, I I would seek out their local fire warden or local fire service response area where they are and get advice on that. I I wouldn't advise to go out and do backburning without thoroughly thinking that through and and getting uh, expert advice on that. Um, but now given you know, Monday, extreme conditions in some areas, Thursday, get onto our website, have a look, understand what you need to do and do what you can.
1: So you said, um, later in the week, there's going to be, um, extreme fire risk for the channel country and, and obviously sort of in these parts out here in the West and, and throughout the, the areas of rural Queensland, there is a limitations on the, the number of crews and the people within those crews. So for people that are on properties around Queensland that may not have immediate access to services, what's your, what's your advice to, I guess, avoid a fire situation or if they are in a fire situation, to help keep that under control until crews can arrive?
3: Look, it's a, it's a good question and a good point. And you're right, we can't have a fire appliance at every house in Queensland, and a situation will come up uh, where you know a property will be under threat, and we can't get a fire appliance there. So, to limit that and to and to stop that, we urge people to prepare and plan early. Go onto our website, understand the technicalities of what you should be doing around your property, you know, clearing the area, etc. Uh, speak to local fire wardens, get advice off them. And when you're as prepared as you can be and you understand what the warnings mean for you, there's a, you know, very high chance that your property will be safe if you've prepared it properly. And, you know, that puts everyone in a in a, a better position.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Steve DePinto from the Queensland Fire and Emergency Services. Uh, hopefully, you know, the week goes a bit smoother than the weekend did and, and things go okay for you and your crews.
3: Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
1: Steve DePinto is the State Coordinator for the Queensland Fire and Emergency Services. And uh, as you heard over the weekend, there was a large bushfire near Emerald. 16 crews and two water bombing planes were working to contain that fire, which had threatened several homes with a, and a local caravan park. Residents in the Fairburn State Forest area were issued with a warning to leave immediately on Sunday afternoon, but that was revoked later that evening as the fire was brought under control. Local grazier Morrie uh, Idols Idles spoke with Paul Culliver this morning about the situation.
4: We live about nine kilometres towards um, the dam on the Nagoa River. We've got a seventy-acre irrigation block there, right on the river, and we lease the twenty-thousand-acre for- Fairburn State Forest.
0: Right. Okay. So, what was sort of your, what was your activity yesterday?
4: <laughs> yesterday, believe it or not, Paul, we were working. Um, about 45 kilometres away from where we live and we could see some smoke from where we were and then there was a few phone calls made and back and forth and find out where it was and, yeah, then I had to race home. When I got home, like, the irrigation channel runs along our boundary and when I got home, I went and checked to see where the fire was and you could see it had jumped over the channel and gone into the forest and I sort of, you know... Was a bit of a panic station there, but yeah, we um, got a dozer in, and we've got our own grader and dozer, and we finished about seven o'clock last night with our breaks, and yeah, we we were pretty happy with what the way it went, Paul.
0: Maury what? How close to your property did that fire get then?
4: Well, it, it didn't get near the freehold block, but it, yeah, block like, it was burning in the in the the state forest which we lease, so that's where we oh, did the gotcha. containment lines. Yeah. yeah. It was uh, the, two, the plains were water bombing the area and, you know, it was all pretty helpful.
0: Yeah, and that's that's for grazing, you use the forest?
4: Yeah, we've run cattle there, about 400, 400 drought master breeders there, Paul.
0: Yeah, were any of them around? Like, what's, what's happened with the animals?
4: No, no, well, we've double-checked on them and just once we had a handle on where the fire was exactly like, we, the cattle were fairly safe, it was just a... A bit of a terrible day yesterday, and we're well, lucky it happened yesterday and probably not later on the week when it's supposed to get 37, 38.
0: Yeah. Um, in terms of just explain to us, Maury, the, the conditions on the ground there and what, what your property and I suppose also the state forest are looking like in terms of that dryness.
4: It's pretty bloody frightening, Paul. It's tender dry. Like we go to the western side of Emerald and adjacent to the railway line, and we've already had. Three or four spot fires start along the roller line must be from the trains. You know, in the last three or four weeks, which it's we're sort of on tender hooks all the time at the moment.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, what does this change your thinking in terms of you know how much more you might have to do around the property?
4: Yeah, we'll just have to monitor it. Like we will have to, you know, really accelerate our fire breaking and that sort of thing, Paul, and just try and you know, keep on top of everything somehow, but yeah, it's a bit of a worry.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you're working on more fire breaks today?
4: Yeah, we'll get into it today. One one of the young fellas is monitoring the fire break we put in last night, but we're we're pretty happy with it this morning and last night, so yeah, we just don't want a big wind or something to send endless flying everywhere.
0: Yeah, let's hope not, yeah. Anything else you want to yeah. share this morning?
4: No, no, just we're pretty relieved, Paul, and you know, thank, pretty thankful for everyone's help, really. So, yeah, hopefully, this is not the start of something, you know, really bad for the year, but we're pretty worried, Paul.
0: Yeah, uh, I think a few people thinking that this morning, and uh, I think it's um prepare, 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 I think is all we can do at this point. Yeah, uh,
4: that's right. It's been so hard because we've had such a good season, it's been hard to actually get in early and do breaks and this sort of thing. So, we're we're behind the eight ball for a start, really. But, yeah, all we can do is play catch-up.
1: Emerald Grazier, Mori Idols speaking there with Paul Culliver. It's 15 minutes past 12 on the Queensland Country Hour.
5: The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: Australia's Livestock Traceability System is set to get a $22.5 million makeover. The federal government has allocated that money to MLA-owned Integrity Systems Company, which has been tasked with redesigning the 23-year-old National Livestock Identification System, or NLIS, database. Acting CEO of Integrity Systems Company, Joe Quigley, says the funding will go towards developing a new, strengthened database. We're
6: really excited um, to receive this uh, grant from the the Australian Government um, and it's all about looking at how we can scope and and design and build a new livestock traceability platform um, for the for the livestock industries to meet the needs both today and well into the future.
7: So it's replacing the twenty three year old national livestock identification system or the NLIS database. Can you talk me through what upgrades are going to happen and what changes are, are priorities when it comes to this replacement? Absolutely. And look, I think just to to start
6: out and say that the current platform has served us really well in those 23 years and is still doing its job, um, meeting the needs of industry and government and being able to to track livestock right across Australia. Um, But we recognise that there's many new technologies out there that can really help us to uplift particularly the user experience um, so that it's far easier for for livestock producers and the supply chain to um, record information, submit information, retrieve information from the platform. Um, And we're really looking at ways in which we can make it far more interoperable so that it can talk to other systems that we know are being used right across the industry. So creating that seamless experience um, and, and really leveraging the technology to deliver, um, I guess, a world-class traceability platform.
7: And I understand you're going to be talking to industry representatives. How are you going to be doing that consultation process?
6: that's critical. We want to make sure that as we go through this build, we're we're designing it in a way that's going to meet the needs of the end users. So we're starting off with a strategic discovery where we're going to really set the the vision and the scope for what we want to achieve over the next three years. Um, And then once we've got that that scope really clearly defined, we'll be starting to engage really closely with end users, with with industry participants to to make sure that as as we design the new platform, um, that we've got that, that sort of input right along the way. So there'll be a number of um, co-design groups that we're going to be setting up. There'll be plenty of showcases and opportunity for, for feedback and input. Um, we want to make sure that this is a, a success for everyone that's involved.
7: And for now, the current ENVD system that livestock are moved around the country with is staying the same, no changes as of yet. Is that right? so
6: look i think we've got um the n l i s platform and we've got the e n v d platform and um What we would ideally like to to see through this project is the the two systems coming together so that it's very seamless for producers, that they're covering their livestock declarations and all of their traceability requirements through a single system, through a single process. So um, no changes just yet, but that will be something that we're we're factoring in to create that um, integrated and seamless experience for, for producers.
7: Is it going to be a big technological step forward? I'm just thinking I wonder if people are listening worried that – it's all going to get very technical and confusing. No, I think it's absolutely
6: the opposite of of that. What we are trying to do is deliver technology in the most um, user-friendly um, way as as possible. So we want to remove the pain points. We want to remove some of the complexity that currently exists. That's really first and foremost in terms of the, the design. Um, and there's great technology out there that will allow us to do that.
7: And I'm just thinking when it comes to things like art, uh, like EID tags and stuff like that, are we going to see looking at the cattle industry more electronic tagging and, and stuff like that being implemented into this new system?
6: No. Look, I think in terms of the way NLIS works, works at the moment with the identification, um, none of that will change. This is really just the, the platform um, that underpins the traceability system and making sure that that's much more fit for purpose for the needs of our, our users.
7: And how is this going to support Australia's biosecurity as a whole? Yeah, look, I think if we can
6: simplify the process for for producers and and supply chains um, in terms of, of how they capture information to underpin traceability, which obviously has a flow on um, benefit to biosecurity. It just means that we will continue to strengthen and ensure that we've got the data there, that it's it's available, it's easy to access when we need it, should we need it, um, if there is some sort of a biosecurity issue um, that, that needs to be addressed.
1: Jo Quigley is the acting CEO of Integrity Systems Company. She was speaking there to Alice Marshall.
5: On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour.
1: It is 21 minutes past 12 and lamb prices have been low for a while, though you may not have seen that reflected at the supermarket. But some farmers are getting creative when it comes to making a profit on their flock. Instead of selling at Salyard, some are instead opting to sell direct to customers. Farmer George Beck in South Australia's southeast recently decided to start selling boxes of lamb himself with a portion donated to the local footy and netball clubs
8: bit of a short-term thing we had some uh, good lambs that were left over that we'd sort of hung on to and re and planned to put them into the market hoping it would correct itself but it's continued to slide so I thought um, with customers sort of still really feeling the heat with the cost of living stuff it was an opportunity to put some lamb back into the local market it wasn't going to cost us anything and with the addition of a $20 a box like whole lamb box donation back to the football club it was sort of a short-term win situation for everyone and a bit of a cost recovery exercise for us.
9: And a lot of interest?
8: There was a lot of interest actually. The The first day particularly we had some lambs that well, they were hoggets actually, they'd just cut their teeth so they were they're not even fully formed uh, hogget teeth and in the market last week uh, they probably would have only been worth sort of 60 65 dollars and Uh, you know as a a finished lamb a product like that should sort of be making around 220 to 250 so that was a bit of a hit so they didn't really owe us anything so I thought I'd uh, see uh, what the local demand was like and put up an ad on Facebook for lamb in the box sort of 25 to 30 kilos for I think those ones range from sort of 180 to 220 and worked out at 679 a kilogram so definitely not making money on those ones And uh, we're offering lamb now too at $12 a kilogram. So that's in the box, either a whole lamb or a side. That's with the money going back, some of the money, $20 a box going back to the club too.
9: So people have been taking it as an opportunity to stock up and save some money.
8: Yeah, that's right and I think it's a good idea if a couple of people can get together if they don't have the freezer space and uh, divvy up the cuts uh, when the box arrives and uh, fill their freezers. There was a bit of concern for some people. Not, not everyone has a large sort of chest freezer or a full-length full, full length freezer, so, yeah, just these last few days we've offered the lamb as a side as well, so a bit less space and, yeah, good way to stock up on a product that is um, a fair bit cheaper than that's being offered probably at the big, big retailers, but definitely um, the local butchers are doing a really good job of passing on those cost savings.
9: So this was just a limited run for the moment, but is, is it something you consider doing more often?
8: Uh, I don't think it would be a long-term plan for us. It is quite time consuming, but um, if the market's gonna be tough for 12 or 18 months, it, it could be just another little uh, side outlet for us to siphon some of the better quality lambs off and get killed locally. It's a local works and it's a local butcher uh, doing the killing and processing and um, it's an opportunity for local people to try some of the region's good, good produce.
9: And have you heard any of your other fellow farmers doing something similar?
8: There has been others around, sort of pig and, and lamb and a few beef products as well and I'm seeing more and more of it actually popping up in recent weeks as well as people are seeing similar opportunities to uh, keep those lambs going out and not taking an absolute hiding at the market.
9: <laughs> so you're happy in your the farm here to wait it out and hope for it to improve or are you reconsidering how many lambs you might be running in the future?
8: We don't really have a choice. We have to keep on keeping on. The main thing is, and we're pretty lucky here with the high rainfall, and uh, we have quite a bit of irrigation as well, so we are able to finish our product on grass every time, uh, which means we aren't getting the total smashing that some people are. If, you, if you're not able to finish it uh, this year, I think it's going to be pretty tough. So, yeah, we have no real choice but to uh, push them through and sort of hope that this glut moves through.
9: And it can often be easy to get caught up in in the numbers, but for your average consumer, what's the best way they can support their local farmers and butchers?
8: I think, I mean, the the specials are starting to come on a little bit. We've had some consumer resistance uh, in the red meat side of things particularly it's it's a difficult one i mean everyone's hurting at the checkout if you're stopping eating it all together and yeah make the system worse and it's not it's not a good thing long term so we need that sustainability and we need some consistency in the pricing to to keep farming
1: south australian prime lamb farmer george beck speaking with elsie adamo Banana freckle was officially eradicated from the Northern Territory back in 2019, but in May 2022, it was detected again on a commercial banana farm. Owners of Rum Jungle Organics, Alan Peterson and Julianne Murphy, had thousands of their banana plants destroyed by biosecurity officers. It was an upsetting time for them, but here they tell Matt Bran that's now turned to anger. Sixteen months after the, the detection, they've been they've received no compensation and say they've been completely left in the dark by the NT government.
10: So, in May, 2022. Our farm was found to have banana freckle and we were put into quarantine, so we couldn't move any bananas off the property or sell any bananas. So after eight months of waiting and organising, we finally had the crop removed and then, um, then we applied for compensation and we've waited another eight months since then and we haven't had any word on when compensation is going to start. We have to wait 12 months after they find no regrowth. So they need three visits where there's no regrowth and then the clock will start ticking for one year before we can replant bananas.
11: So in the meantime, what are you doing on the farm? Are you, are you growing something else?
10: No, Matt, we're not growing much else. Um, the, the removing the bananas reduced their income by 90% so we don't have the funds to regrow an alternative crop we don't ha- all of our hoses and sprinklers went in the hole with the bananas so the paddocks are all bare there's no system there for us to replant a crop and because we're waiting on hearing about the compo, we don't have the um, funds in our account that we can risk by running out and buying a whole lot of new sprinklers and hoses and plants you've got to pay for all the plants and seeds, so there's not much growing there. We've we've sort of poked along, and um, this dry, we dug out all our old tomato seeds, and we planted some tomatoes. But there's only you know a few hundred dollars. It's not like a an income as such. It's just we just go to the market and scrap around basically. Mm. Um, so we can't really, and we can't take a loan because we have no income. So um, we're kind of in a holding pattern waiting for this compo thing to start and yet it's already been eight months and we still don't have an assessor and a time frame.
11: And 16 months since banana freckle was detected so um, Al unfortunately your farm has been through all of this before in 2013. How does this compare to what happened
12: about a decade ago? Uh, The last time it was um, a schmozzle But they basically were at least considerate the fact that you've suddenly been stripped of your income generating ability. And so they advanced us about 20 grand or so to keep us going afloat for a little while until compensation was completed about four months after the um, initial quarantine period. So Mm -hmm. this time we've been left in the dark, no information back. We have to constantly ask what's happening you know every month or so or every couple of weeks we're sort of saying well you're going to get back to us but nobody's rung us nobody knows what's going on Um, there's been no offer of monies for in between there's been uh, no indication of when we might actually get compensated except that oh we're doing that and we've been hearing that story for eight months now
1: Julianne Murphy and Alan Peterson from Rum Jungle Organics speaking there with Matt Brann. And on the Queensland Country Hour, it is 12.30, so it's time to check the weather forecast. We've got Harry Clark from the Bureau of Meteorology on the line. How are you going today, Harry?
13: Yeah, very well, thank you.
1: Lovely. So uh, we've been hearing a bit so far on the Country air about the fire situation across the state. Obviously, some big fires over the weekend. But in terms of the conditions for today, what are, what are we looking at? Are, are there any concerns over changing winds?
13: Look, uh, the winds are pretty stable today. Generally, sort of northeast to southeasterly across uh, most of the state. Um, Probably the more notable point is just how warm it is, particularly through the interior. So uh, temperatures uh, through, you know, sort of central west, southwest, uh, even in sort of central highlands, getting into the 30s. uh, So, you know, well above average for September and likely to climb further over coming days.
1: And and will there be any relief, uh, I guess, in terms of rainfall across the state?
13: Look, unfortunately not. Uh, we are seeing a bit of shower activity around the Northrop coast, but that's probably the one place that you know, doesn't want it or need it. Uh, elsewhere, though, really staying dry for pretty much the next week. Uh, so unfortunately, that heat uh, building, as I said, um, really probably peaking around Wednesday through the interior and being dragged towards the, the coastal areas uh, on the Thursday. And once again, um, temperatures sort of, you know, 10, 11 degrees above average. And with that, the uh, sort of high fire dangers will be... Uh, spreading further east as well so high fire danger through much of the interior today and for the next few days by the time we get to Thursday that high fire danger will really be for most southeastern districts including the Dying Downs, the Wide bay Burnett and of course the southeast
14: coast.
1: And in terms of the the heat that you were saying about earlier are we expecting that to continue for the rest of the week and into next week w- what kind of conditions are we working with?
13: Yeah, so temperature-wise, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Generally, uh, most locations peaking on the Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, in the, sort of the southeastern corner of the state, on Friday we'll get a fairly gusty sort of southeasterly change, and that'll really knock the temperatures back. That'll make its way into the Darling Downs as well. So Toowoomba, for example, 32 on Thursday, back down to just a maximum of 21 on Friday. Elsewhere in the state, uh, that cool change will take longer to arrive and slowly filter through to sort of inland areas over the weekend. So temperatures really peaking for most locations, on that Wednesday, Thursday, and then slowly drawing back, except for the southeast where the change will be a bit more sharp. So um, I guess a bit of relief on the horizon, but certainly uh, not much in the way of rainfall except for that north tropical coast area, but the showers will continue for today, tomorrow, and he's back from
1: Wednesday. And uh, sticking to that sort of coastal area, what are we looking at today and over the coming days? How are are things going to be looking there?
13: It looks still fairly breezy up in far northern and northern Queensland. The southeast leads getting up to 25 knots for the Townsville Uh, and Cooktown waters, generally 15 to 20 knots elsewhere. In the south, a bit of a different story, quite light winds around today, generally sort of easterly, northeasterly, 10 to 15 knots. Uh, We will see those winds dial back a little bit over the next few days, thanks to our ridge of high pressure weakening. So most locations, including the far north, back down to sort of 15 to 20 knots uh, Tuesday, and even 10 to 15 knots on Wednesday looks like at this stage um, we'll see a big increase in those winds and strong wind warnings returning to the southeast from Friday, potentially extending once again into central and northern Queensland over the weekend.
1: And with that wind warning, you said stretching into central Queensland, what kind of impact do you expect that might have on those, um, the, the bushfires that we're seeing popping up around the place?
13: Yeah, look, that sort of wind warning wouldn't be till the weekend, so um, certainly I guess no, no concern in the immediate um, short term. Uh, probably more of interest in terms of winds uh, through the interiors. We will see uh, a trough in a southwesterly wind change move through Wednesday through inland locations and on Thursday through sort of coastal locations in the south of the state. Um, that will, you know, be obviously not great help uh, to those fires, that wind change. Uh, so it's probably the key one to look out from a fire perspective. There is a chance we will see some fire weather warnings issued uh, later in the week, particularly looking likely for the channel country on the Thursday, but couldn't rule it out even in the Darling Downs and Granite Belt as well with that wind change.
1: Yeah, and as you mentioned there in the Channel Country on Thursday, we're expecting an extreme fire warning that we heard that from uh, QFES earlier today. So, obviously, pretty tough conditions out and about. Anything else that we should be aware of for today or the coming days, Harry?
13: Well, I think that's covered most of it. Um, Yeah, not too much else going on other than that dry and settled conditions, except for that north triple coast with the showers.
1: Alrighty. Well, thank you very much for updating us on the weather across Queensland this afternoon. That was Harry Clark from the Bureau of Meteorology. And uh, while we are chatting about weather, the Bureau of Meteorology has announced construction has begun on a new weather radar near Toowoomba. The new radar will be located near Crow's Nest and the bomb says it'll enable more customers to access real-time weather information and increase forecast accuracy. The new radar is scheduled for completion in mid 2024 uh, and is expected to add coverage to current, current radar gaps to the west and southwest of Toowoomba. This includes the northern parts of the Mooney and Border River catchments, the Upper Condamine River catchment, and the Mining and Resources Precinct around Chinchilla. The Bureau is also upgrading the Brisbane, Marburg, Cairns, and Mackay weather radars. Mm-hmm.
5: Rural news
3: and information on ABC, local radio Queensland.
1: Biosecurity is a topic on everyone's lips at the moment, particularly in Northern Australia, thanks to the threat of incursions of diseases like foot and mouth and lumpy skin disease. For 2023 Nuffield scholar Regan Lynch, it's made her research into on-farm biosecurity very interesting. The mixed vet animal, the mixed animal vet rather from northwest Queensland just returned home from a global focus program which saw her travel with a group of international scholars to get a broader overview of agricultural practices across the globe.
15: Yeah so I think it always just drives home how important biosecurity is to the Australian economy and probably affects everyday Australians a lot more than What we think there's so many people who rely on agriculture in many different ways for their livelihood and to realize that we are a lot more fragile than we expected us to be and we while we're very confident in our biosecurity within australia we also have to consider what's happening outside and around us and how that impacts us as well so it has been really interesting to see what sort of impacts could occur and and you know the lumpy skin uh issue was a really interesting point that we you know the animals were detected overseas as being um positive we have had no detection though in australia so that's a really interesting line that we're walking that we have to manage. not just our own internal biosecurity, but also our animals, once they leave the country, we're still part of their welfare and also their biosecurity concerns.
1: And so, Regan, you said you're heading off on your solo travels shortly as well, and you're going to be heading to places like the UK, which we all know has a lot of experience with major biosecurity issues, for example, FMD. And you'll also head to Indonesia as well, which currently is playing a big role in the issues we're experiencing at the moment. So how much do you think you'll be able to learn from those places?
15: Yeah, so I'm really interested to talk to people who have had the lived experience through foot and mouth, but also things like avian influenza, um, which is causing a lot of issues as well, but the lived experience, what happened, but also what's changed since that period and what other things have they implemented and what things have worked and what hasn't worked. uh, That will be a real focus for my research in knowing um, I'm not just looking at what we can do during the event or potential event but you know what things can we do to help 20 or 30 years after that could reduce these things so what are the strategies that they've put in place to help mitigate these risks as well so I'm really interested to see not just what's happening now but also looking back and seeing what's changed and what works and what doesn't work. As part of my travels I did find that you know the issues we face in our Australian agricultural industry are very global and we just have so much to learn from not just our own industries internationally, but other industries. There's just so much information that we can all really share and learn from that come from quite unexpected sources. So even looking at what's happening in horticulture and the poultry industry and applying it back into different industries is really important. And I think the the global focus program was just a really great way to make sure that I had a really broad vision about what agriculture means and how much information and experience and learnings there are when you look outside your box. And that I think applies in so many ways for a lot of things. And I guess
1: your career, I guess, as a vet in itself would, you'd be really well placed, I guess, to learn about all these issues with biosecurity and then having learnt what you have, being back in Australia and having that sense of global knowledge as well is is so beneficial.
15: It's been really great and I'm starting to have some really great conversations with um, people. So, it's nice to have the Nuffield experience behind me. So when people say, oh, what have you been up to? And I sort of talk about these things and we are having really great discussions and going a bit deeper um, than you might do normally, um, which is really great to, to really get into the issues and um, get a really personal experience um, and perspective from a lot of people or just the Nuffield program is really great for opening those sort of conversations up and um, It just seems to give you, I'm not just there as the vet, I'm kind of showing a bit more of uh, an interest in the wider agricultural industry and I think that's really important to people as well.
1: Mixed animal vet and 2023 Nuffield Scholar Regan Lynch and it is 19 minutes to one.
5: You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: In the northeast of Victoria, a new crop is growing that could one day be used to treat patients with diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and long COVID. Eight farmers have planted their paddocks with medicinal gum trees, producing a variety that has high concentrates of a compound that could be used in pharmaceuticals, Annie Brown has this report.
11: And yeah, been been the kind of the the lighter, lighter paddock in on the farm, you know, predominantly kind of buckshot country, as you can see.
9: Mark Valletta is a farmer who isn't afraid to try new things, and he's showing me one of his
11: latest yeah, we crops. We usually put cattle in this paddock to, so they lose weight before calving, so, so to, uh, you know, not take up uh, high-end horticulture land, it's, uh, yeah, it's a really, really exciting new venture. I'm a mixed farmer based just south of Benella I uh, run quite a diverse operation of uh, cherries, grapes for wine, lucerne, Angus cattle, merino sheep, wild forage mushrooms, and uh, the uh, medicinal gum trees that we 're here to see today yeah I, I, it, it definitely piques uh, people 's interest and they said, oh medicinal gums what 's involved is is it is it for the extraction of the oil and this is this is actually a compound that 's in quite high concentrations called pinoymbrom, which has uh, been shown to have some really good uh, beneficial uh, medical application in Alzheimer's and dementia and anti-inflammatory and uh, antimicrobial uh, yeah, qualities.
2: So how
9: did you get into growing medicinal gum trees?
11: Uh, funnily enough, a farmer mate of mine down the road, uh, JP, he, uh, he said, oh there's a guy the farm next to me uh growing some interesting gum trees i reckon i reckon it be right up your alley mark and uh jumped the fence and uh went and caught up with alistair and uh anyway he was kind enough to show us the original planting and uh, i noticed there was a, a little infestation of uh some sort of uh caterpillar and i said oh you better kind of do something about this uh, otherwise uh, otherwise uh, you might not have a crop and he said oh we're actually looking for um other growers and uh someone with horticultural experience would really you know Love to have involved and uh, yeah. From from then I was uh, got when I found out that uh, the project was had really good backing from uh, Swinburne uh, University, Melbourne University, and there was a lot of research in and around it. I, I was like, wow, this is something I'm I'm kind of really interested in, and uh, yeah. A couple of years down the track, we're, we're standing here in the, in the trees and you know some of them are almost 10 foot high. So
9: Mark has 2,000 gum trees in his plantation and is one of a handful of growers around the banella region. The trees are grown for Australian biotech company Gretels. The Chief Executive Officer, Alistair Cummings, said they were originally looking for compounds that could be used to replace
2: the use of antibiotics in livestock feed. When we started this journey um, in 1978, I was at a conference uh, at Massey University in New Zealand and as that one of the key lecturers at that time stood up and made a comment in front of uh, major ph- pharmaceutical companies and representatives from around the world is that the way that we're using antibiotics in livestock feed is going to lead to a potential problem as far as resistance was concerned so that's when the journey started so at that time i decided to meet some people from uh, University of Melbourne, School of Botany, which is now Biosciences, and uh, got talking with them. And is that uh, we applied for and achieved to get an ARC linkage grant. And is that uh, we started looking at uh, originally 188 different species of Australian flora. And out of that, we found one particular species, which uh, is in front of us at the present stage, which is a species which has got a high content of a compound called Pinusimbran.
9: How long, in terms of a timeline, how long before we would see a product from these medicinal gum trees available to people to try?
2: We're looking at um, having a functional food with this compound within the next um, 18 months.
1: Annie Brown with that report there. It is 15 minutes to one on the Queensland Country Hour.
5: The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: Many Australians have made it big, competing on the professional rodeo circuit in the United States. But the leafy eastern suburbs of Sydney aren't necessarily known as a breeding ground for these Aussie cowboys. But that's where William Reynolds grew up. A gap here on a top-end station opened up a world of possibility for the saddle bronc rider. And Clint Jasper spoke to Will from his new home in Fort Worth, Texas.
5: I, you know, grew up surfing every day, skating, riding my bike. I was the epitome of a surfing city kid. All I ever wanted to do was surf and I couldn't imagine a life not by the beach. And then here we are.
14: You finished high school with not a lot of ideas about where you wanted to go. So in news that'll make lots of agricultural educators very happy. You decided to take a gap year in the bush. Where did that take you?
5: So I actually didn't do the HSC. I didn't do my ATAR in year 12. And all I wanted to do was go out in the bush, be in the outback. So I left early. I went and worked on a station in the Northern Territory called Mount Sanford for Heightsbury Cattle Company and, and just trying to figure out what I wanted to do.
14: You were going to rodeos every weekend as is the kind of common practice for many of the ringers up there. What was the idea or spark or something you saw that made you want to go from spectator to participant?
5: Yeah. So it's just a common thing that, you know, kind of all the the jackaroos or the station hands would enter up in the events. And it's something that I'd come across, albeit very briefly, um, but I knew I wanted to give a crack. So I think we'd worked for two and a half months straight. The first rodeo of the quote unquote season came up in Daily Waters. And they sent out a paper slip to all the stations, and I ticked every box for every single event. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but all I knew was that I wanted to give it a crack. I didn't really have any expectations, um, but I got I got a rude shock when I when I showed up and and realised that it was time to actually do what I signed up for. Were you a natural at it? No, not at all. I sucked. And and I'd probably attribute a large part of that to where I am now because I was so horrible that it got on my nerves so bad that I thought I need to figure this out before I give up.
14: What was also happening that was kind of exposing you or, or setting, helping you set your eyes on getting over to the States?
5: Yeah. So it's just something that, you know, I'd always, well, since I'd been introduced to this kind of way of life, I fantasized about you know, the American cowboy and that that lifestyle. And it's always something I wanted to go and experience firsthand and, and exactly how I'd get over there, I wasn't sure. So um, after I came home from working in the Territory, I went to university in Armidale and I was looking at their exchange programs so that I could kind of kill two birds with one stone. I had friends that were over here college rodeoing. I knew that I wasn't at a level where I'd be offered a scholarship to come over here but it's something that I wanted to do. So I was looking at different exchange programs and then I reached out to a guy new over here on Facebook looking for some advice and he told me pretty straight and simple that if you want to really have a crack at it and do it right then you need to come to this school and you need to be consistently working at it day in day out and I knew that's what it took. So I committed to that decision and over there and and, you know, was willing to do whatever it took to succeed.
14: It is a fairly brutal sport on the body. And as you said, you've got the dislocations and the surgery scars to prove it. What's everything that you've put your body through in, uh, I guess, pursuit of this goal?
5: Oh, man. (laughs) Um, I've had probably just about any injury you can imagine. But um, the, the injuries that have required surgery, I broke my wrist and got it screwed back together. I've had four combined shoulder reconstructions, two hip surgeries, uh, work done on my knee, concussions, you name it. I've had it. I've only had seven reconstructive surgeries.
14: (laughs) You competed on the summer circuit, the most recent summer circuit in the US. How did that go for you?
5: Yeah, so I had a really good year. Unfortunately, after Fort Worth earlier this year, I had to get surgery on my left hip. It was something that I knew I had to get done at some stage, so I decided to get it done in the winter before the busy sort of peak summer rodeos began. I didn't get to start rodeoing again until June, but this year I went to the least amount of rodeos I've ever been to, but I've won the the most amount of money. So all in all, it was a positive year, but I'm definitely looking to set myself up for success next year.
14: You've spoken on social media a lot about how – really anyone can find their way into this sport, no matter what their background is. So how do you want to spread that message further as you continue to compete?
5: Yes, I think it's important that there's this large misconception that you need to either come from a farming or, you know, ranching background to get into this lifestyle. And I certainly think like, I certainly would like to think I proved that wrong. Um, I've been using social media originally to promote my business, but what I've found is that people have taken uh, some curiosity into my life, my lifestyle, my travels and my adventures. And I've found that I can use those platforms for good and promote people and encourage people to do whatever they want, regardless of their background.
14: And just to wrap up, well I guess there'd be a lot of people ending their high school journey at the moment. Based on how it worked out for you, how much would you recommend a, a gap year out on a station?
5: Oh, 100%. It, you know, it's a lot of hard work. There's highs and lows as there is in anything, but I think it's it's uh all positive doing a bit of hard yakka you know, rolling up your sleeves, getting your hands dirty and and getting to meet those those people you meet out there. It's an awesome opportunity and a a thing I think everyone should do.
1: That was Saddle Bronc rider William Reynolds speaking with Clint Jasper.
0: Have you downloaded the ABC Listen app yet? Make sure you tap the heart and make your local ABC radio station one of your favourites.
11: We are one of your favourites. Aren't we?
1: They swapped their jobs and cosmopolitan life in Melbourne's CBD for a bush block where the nearest cafe is a 20-minute drive away. But Jennifer Nini, and Ben Maguire have never regretted their move to the hills near Waluga, northwest of Gympie. As Jennifer Nichols discovered, it's been an ideal location to get back to basics and create a picture-perfect, spray-free flower farm.
16: What colour is this?
17: This one is a light pink ranunculus. Some people think they look like roses.
16: Love blossomed when Filipino-born Aussie city slicker Jennifer Nini met Ben McGuire at an IT recruitment company in Melbourne in 2008.
18: I grew up in Mullamimbi, Byron Bay, and just went to the city, Bright Lights, at 18, see if I could, uh, yeah... <laughs> find my partner. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
16: You found me. While I enjoyed Melbourne's food, culture, entertainment and being close to Jennifer's family and friends, life was hectic. What I don't love about the city is just, it is
17: go, go, go. So mm. there is no time to breathe, really. You're kind of swept up with the crowd and everyone's rushing, so... You're also rushing because that's your norm. Your norm is to just keep going. And then even when you're off, you're on, if you know what I mean. You're still plugged in. You're not really disconnected. And so you're still stimulated, constantly stimulated from the time you and walk out the I don't think door. you
18: realise that that's happening until you're in the bush or on a rural place because then you look at the lifestyle you had and it's like, wow, that was... How do we do it? (laughs) How are we in an apartment building?
16: The death of Ben's brother, Mark, made them rethink what they wanted in life.
18: Well, I thought that we should just leave the city and get into the bush. Um, we hadn't really experienced that before and um, just wanted to change. My family was up this way as well, so um, it was good to get close to them. And Jen
16: just was, was. I had a
17: house in Melbourne and I was like, okay, I'll just get my brother to mind it and I'll come up and let's see how we go. In
16: 2014, they settled on this 48 hectare off grid property near Woollooga, more than an hour and a half drive northwest of the Sunshine Coast. And then we loved it. Jennifer Nini continued to work work online and Ben Maguire in construction. Flower farming only came after COVID. This used to be a greenhouse
17: full of greens, food. And then when COVID hit, I'm like, I need to grow something for me, something that's beautiful, so I started growing flowers and it just took off.
16: The weather proved the biggest hurdle for the first generation farmers.
18: I'm like, wow, we're in the middle of a drought. <laughs> Do you want to grow flowers on this farm? Then we had the floods so she bought all the rain from wishing it.
16: <laughs> After two years of hard work building garden beds, expanding the dam and learning how and what to grow, Flower Farmstead is thriving.
18: Wow! <laughs> A little bit more down again. Love this. I'm facing you. Now.
16: They're off-grid but connect with customers online, documenting their country life with photos and videos on Instagram. Look how beautiful it is. Right, let's go here. They found their tribe at farmers markets selling sustainably grown chemical free blooms. What's been the most difficult thing about this move?
18: Income's been difficult when you're starting off a new farm. We've put a lot of money into it with all the machines and
16: And what's the best thing about living here? Oh. Every
18: morning, yeah. Wake up and it's like it wow. There's a sense is...
16: of purpose. It gives us a sense of purpose
17: and peace.
18: You're a bit deeper than me, so <laughs> <laughs> I just like waking up in the morning and having a nice coffee and just the simple things in life, whereas Jen's more about, yeah. let's, uh, let's make a change.
17: There is so much work and I think the outcome is absolutely beautiful. We are learning. This is still our second year. And you um, change
18: as well. Like we had different ideas, so we put effort into this. Or that. At the moment we're really focusing on this part of our life, the flowers.
16: Inviting others to enjoy a taste of life on the flower farm is their long-term goal. They're working towards a dream of offering romantic stays in tiny houses.
18: This is probably going to be another 10 years of solid everyday work <laughs> to try to get because we've got big goals of where we want to take it, so it's going to be a lot of work. But we love the work.
16: Yeah. In the country, their neighbours live further away but connections are closer. Everyone's just so supportive and so lovely. And just so in lovely. this little
18: road, where there's no shop or anything like that, but all the neighbours, there's a Facebook group. We yeah. all chat. A lot of the older people that were living here before us moved out and there was a whole new group that sort of moved in at the same sort of time over the last 10 years. And, yeah, it's been close. We go catch up with people, have a few, you know, beers and some dinner.
17: And everyone, you know, with the floods that happened last year, you're just there for each other.
18: Great community, Oh, yeah.
17: my goodness. Our neighbours and Gympie as a region, we couldn't ask for a better region. Like, we love it. Jennifer
1: Nini and Ben Maguire speaking there with Jennifer Nichols. There was an increased yarding at the Toowoomba cattle sale today. Here's Errol Luck with more.
19: Numbers lifted by 24 head at 245 at Toowoomba. A fair panel of processor buyers attended along with local restockers and with the return of several feeder orders, the market for domestic yearlings lifted. The overall yarding contained a good mix of yearling steers and heifers, plus lightweight bulls and several pens of heavy cows. Yearling steers 200 to, to restockers made 238 to average 216, For those to feed at 258 to average 233. Yearling steers to feed the domestic market sold at 284 and average 253, and heavy yearling steers to feed average 248 and sold at 252, with the occasional sale at 264. Yielding heifers in the 220 range to processors made $1.74 to average $1.70. And yearling heifers to feed for the domestic market averaged $1.96 and sold at $2.34. Heavy yearling heifers to feed sold at $2.30. Growing steers to, to, to processors sold to $172. And lightweight plain condition cows to processors sold from $0.90 cents to 126 Good heavy score, three and four cows to processors sold from 197 to 2 And lightweight bulls to restockers averaged one ninety seven and sold at two ten. And quality cows and calves sold open auction, sold at $1,430 per unit.
1: And some racing news before we go the first foal of Superstar mare Winks is set to be put up for public sale early next year. Winks is the only horse to claim 33 consecutive race wins in the past 50 years. Bloodstock auctioneer Inglis has been tasked with selling her filly. CEO Sebastian Hutch says it's going to be a spectacle. And if you're thinking of placing a bid, the record price paid for a filly is $1.1 million. But some industry insiders say this particular filly could threaten the all-time record of $5 million paid for Black Caviar's half-brother. And you can read more on that. That story on ABC uh, website, just head to the ABC Rural page. And that is the Country Hour for this Monday afternoon. Thanks so much for your company. Uh, just a reminder, there's a high fire danger in the interior and Gulf country today with that hot and dry weather across the state. It's just about to hit one o'clock though, which means it's time for the news. Have a great day and I'll chat to you later.